Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. For those of you visiting, we are studying through James. Today we come to the next section, which is verses 14 to 26. 14 to 26. <clears throat> James 2, 14 to 26. In our everyday English, we have uh, many cliches to express our disdain for things which, um, claims which are made without any substance to back them up. We say things like, talk is cheap, or put your money where your mouth is, or put up or shut up. Your actions speak louder than words. Perhaps uh, I'll believe it when I see it. We, we, we don't like claims that don't have any substance to back them up. But strangely, as, as quickly as we are to express our disdain for empty claims in other areas of life, when it comes to the faith, sometimes we're not nearly so quick to say those kinds of things. Sometimes in regard to the faith, we, we, we play by a different set of rules. Because we know that it's impossible for any of us to earn a right standing before God. And because the first thing we all need is forgiveness for our failures. And because our only hope is salvation that is free, that we, that we didn't earn but we received as a gift. Because of all those things, sometimes we are reluctant to say concerning our faith to our even ourselves let alone anyone else put your money where your mouth is we just kind of want to not say that well we may be reluctant but as you might have come to expect by now james is not reluctant put your money where your mouth is that's kind of the point of this text let me read it verse 14 what good is it my brothers if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our ancestor Abraham? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, that 
A person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, this is quite a passage <coughs> and quite a full plate for us. So think with me here as we try to work our way through this passage, just to kind of give you a little roadmap of where we're going. There are in this, in this passage four illustrations, four examples for us to consider. There's the example of the brother or sister who's hungry and comes needing food or clothing. There's the mention of the faith of demons. That's another example, second one. But thirdly, there's quite a little discussion about Abraham. And then finally, there's a discussion about Rahab. Four illustrations. Now, those four illustrations are grouped in twos. So that there are two that kind of have a negative uh, spin to them, and there are two that have kind of a positive statement. And we're going to group them like that. We're going to talk about two lessons that we have to hear from this text, but there'll be two illustrations that kind of teach us each lesson, a little different part of each lesson. So the first truth of the two truths that we want to learn, the first truth that this passage teaches us is this. Some faith is worthless. Some faith is worthless. Now, we tend to think that, hey, faith is faith. <laughs> uh, salvation is by faith. So if we believe, we have faith, we have salvation. End of the discussion. But here God says, no. Oh, he doesn't deny that salvation is by faith. That certainly is true. In fact, he quotes where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. Salvation is by faith. And he would not deny that it is those who believe who are saved. That's true. But he would have us know that there is a difference between true faith and some lifeless counterfeit faith. He would have us understand that there is some faith that is worthless. Now James gives us two illustrations of worthless faith. Two examples. The first one has to do with uh, the brothers and sisters who are hungry and uh, naked. Here we see that faith is worthless if it doesn't love brothers, our brothers and sisters. Faith that doesn't love the brethren is worthless faith. That's the first example in verses 15 to 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without food, clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now clearly there is faith, belief in this illustration. The needy person is believed to be a brother or a sister. I assume that means to be another fellow Christian. 
There, there is no argument about there being a legitimate need. They need clothing. They need food. Those needs are believed to be true. And there's clearly some response here. There seems to be sympathy for this person. There certainly are kind words. Go, I wish you well. Be warm. Be fed. Words of encouragement. But there is no help. There is no tangible help. And that deficiency, that lack of tangible help, renders the knowledge and the belief and the sympathy and the kind words useless. Worthless. Well, here is a vivid analogy of worthless faith. It is as worthless as warm words to a hungry man. Worthless. Oh, but this is more than just an analogy. Here is a concrete example of worthless faith. Faith that fails to tangibly help a brother or sister in need is dead faith. Worthless faith which cannot save. Jesus said that himself, you know. Remember when he talked about the judgment day? And those who he would dismiss from his presence, I never knew you. Because when I was hungry and when I was naked and when I was sick and in prison, you didn't care. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't do anything. And people say, Lord, when, when did we ever see you hungry or naked or sick or in prison? And he says, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of my brothers, you did not do it to me. You see, some faith is worthless. Specifically, faith that does not love the brethren. Oh, folks. We're so caught up in our American individualism. Every man for himself. We tend to just dismiss our responsibility to one another. We, we, we want to be Lone Ranger Christians. We don't care about the rest of the body. God makes much of the body. God says that it is of the essence of saving faith that it's expressed in love for the brethren. If not, But then there's a second example. And here we see that there's worthless faith and that there's faith that doesn't truly love God. That's the point of the example in verse 19. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Did it ever occur to you that there's no one in this room, myself included, there is no one here whose theology is more accurate than the devil's. There is no one here who believes in God more than Satan. There is no one here who feels the weight of the implications of God's existence as much as Satan. 
he trembles. What, is that not faith? <laughs> to know the right thing, to believe him, to be so convinced that you shudder at the implications of those things. Is this not true faith? Oh, if we only had such faith, right? That's the faith of the devil. Worthless faith. What's missing? Well, the reference to the devil believing that God is one gives us a hint. That statement refers us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, what the Jews call the Shema. It goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it goes on to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Oh, do you see what's lacking? The devil knows that God is one. The devil believes that God is the only true God. The devil trembles at the presence of the Holy One. He is emotionally moved. But the devil does not love God. Does not love God. Albert Barnes said with frightening candor, if demons might hold such faith and remain in perdition, men might hold it and go to perdition. You see, some faith is worthless. Faith that does not love God, for example. Well, I challenge us this morning. It is possible that we might sit here with faith no better than the devil's. If our faith does not issue forth in active love for our brothers and sisters in need, it's worthless, dead faith. And if our faith, if our theology, if all of our accurate knowledge of God and all of our confidence that God's word is true, and if our fear of God our awe of his majesty, our trembling at his presence, if all of that does not produce love for him, love for him, above everything else, then all that knowledge is dead, worthless faith that cannot save anyone. Oh, beware, caution, warning, some faith is worthless. So how would you know? Well, that brings us to the second truth that we have in this passage, and the second two examples. Second truth is this, true faith acts. True faith acts, works. I've kidded with some of you uh, this week about this sermon saying, well, you might be sure and bring your kindling and matches in case you have to burn a heretic here. 
I say that because it's difficult to preach this passage as James really wrote it, to tell it like it really is and not water it down, but let the Bible speak for itself. It's difficult to do that without someone accusing you of preaching heresy, that you're preaching that salvation is by works, not just by faith. Here God clearly tells us that true faith acts. It's not just something that happens in our hearts. It's not just some profession of our mouth. True faith involves our life. Anything less than working, acting faith is not true faith. It cannot save. It does not justify. It's dead. In fact, James goes so far as to say that there is no such thing as faith that can stand all alone apart from any action. Now, it may be useful to us to talk about faith all alone, hypothetically, to make the point that our salvation is grace which we receive, not something that we merit or earn. In that sense, it's helpful for us to talk about faith isolated from everything else. But in practice, there is no such thing as true faith that stands all alone without any action. It doesn't exist. That's what verse 24 says. Look at it. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now this may sound strange to our ears. We've heard Paul write that we're justified by faith alone so many times. James isn't contradicting that. James is just saying that that is only a hypothetical statement. In reality, faith always stands with actions. It may sound strange to our ears, but this is the position that the church has believed for hundreds of years. There's a great quotation that uh, tells us this, a quotation from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the great English creed, was written in the 1600s. Listen to this. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, faith is the alone instrument of justification. In other words, we're justified by faith alone. But it goes right on to say, but it is never alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied by all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. Yes, hypothetically, I'm justified by faith alone. That is, it's purely grace. I don't add one bit of merit to it. But when God works that kind of trust in me, he also works all the other things in me, faith working by love, actions, true faith 
acts. That's the point. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Only faith working through love. True faith acts. Now, James gives us two illustrations of this, two very vivid Old Testament examples. The first is the example of Abraham. And here we see that true faith acts specifically loving God more than anything else. Just like worthless faith fails to love God. True faith acts in loving God. That's the point of our third example, Abraham. Let me read again, verse 21 to 23. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. That's significant that Abraham, to whose actions James is appealing, is the same one to whose faith Paul appealed. Abraham is the classic example of how we're justified, made right before God. Abraham did not earn his salvation. You may recall he was busy serving idols in the Ur of the Chaldees when God called him. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed them. That's how he was made right before God. God promised to make out of Abraham a great nation, a great people for himself. And Abraham had no children. And apparently he and his wife Sarah could not have any children. They were already old when God made the promise. But Abraham said, if God said it, I believe that. And God says, this is a righteous man. He trusts me. He believes my promises. That's the point Paul makes about Abraham's faith back in the book of Romans. But now James says, let's look again at Abraham. Let's look at Abraham 35, 40 years down the road. What does it look like now? What does his faith look like? Was Abraham's faith just a decision he made? Was it just a profession years ago? No. When we come back to Abraham, we find him now, 35, 40 years down the road, God has long since fulfilled his miraculous promises. Against all hope, Abraham had trusted God, and sure enough, in his old age, when he's 100 years old, here Isaac is born. And now, Isaac's half-grown, and Abraham and his wife are delighted that God has kept his promise. But now God, with all his promises resting on Isaac, and with all Abraham's hopes and dreams resting on Isaac, the son God promised to give him, now God says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, the son of promise, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. Now, such things are so far from us that we can hardly fathom what this is, how this would be. We just have to listen to it and learn from it. Here, Abraham is confronted with the choice. 
But it's not a choice between God and the devil. Here he's confronted with a choice between the, the salvation that God had promised and God himself. Between the son that God had miraculously given him and the God who gave him the son. Between a choice between all that he understood and loved and knew and worshipped about God and the God himself who he knew and worshipped. What does faith look like now? Well, true faith acts. Specifically, it loves God no matter what. And Abraham still believed, and because he believed, because he loved God with all of his heart, because he trusted God, a reasoning that God's able to raise my son from the dead if necessary, that's his business. I just will do what he said. I will follow his ways. He packed up young Isaac and the wood and the fire, and he headed up to sacrifice his son. True faith acts. Loving God more than anything. Now some of us who have known the Lord for years and years and years need to be reminded of this. For we so easily grow complacent thinking that we believed years ago and we're kind of over that hurdle and now we kind of have some status and we can kind of sit back and rock and grow old and we're okay. There'll be no hard obedience anymore. Don't have to make hard choices anymore. I'm in. I'm cool. I made profession of faith. I've arrived. No. True faith. 35 or 40 years later is willing to put everything on the line in order to love God. No matter what the cost, I believe him so much. I love him so much. I'll do anything he says. That's the faith of Abraham. True faith acts repeatedly, continuously, persevering for decades. True faith. Well, one more example, and that's the example of Rahab, again teaching us how true faith acts, but here, not just loving God, but loving God's people. Just a quick word about Rahab, verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Here James takes us back to the Old Testament book of Joshua. The people of God are about to come into the promised land that God had given them, and the first city that they're going to encounter is the city of Jericho, the great fortified sea. As they go to spy on the city and to see what it's going to take to come into the land, they, uh, they come to meet Rahab, who's a prostitute. Now Rahab had heard of Israel's God. She had heard of his mighty deeds and how he brought his people out of Egypt by his mighty hand and miraculous power. 
And Rahab had come to believe this must be the true God, God of Israel. She, she, she knew that his enemies were doomed. She saw people around her frightened about what might happen because these people, their God is really something. And she began to believe in that God. But when the spies come into her house, and then they come looking for them, and she hides them, now she suddenly is in a dilemma. Here are the spies hiding up on her roof, under the bundles of flax. And here are her own people, her kinsmen, the authorities to whom she owes allegiance, standing at her door saying, where are they? We know they came in here. Now she's caught in the middle. Her life is on the line. She's caught between what she believes in her heart concerning who the true God really is and the practical realities of her nationality and, and her allegiances and her culture and her city and her homeland and her family and her people. Well, what's she going to do? What does God require of Rahab? Well, she could bow to the pressure and say, oh man, I've got to tell you, uh, hey, yeah, these foreigners, they're, they're up on the roof. <laughs> you might as well go get them. I'd make her a good citizen. I, I suspect a prostitute was not highly esteemed in the community. That'd probably make her quite respectable as a citizen. She might get some community award for looking out for the welfare of the city against these foreign spies. Or she could protect the spy. But that would be like treason against her own people. She would have to totally change her allegiance and, and, and make herself like one of these foreigners rather than like her own family and her own kinsmen and her own race. It might cost her her life. So what's true faith? Can Rahab say that she believes in Israel's God in her heart, but turn God's people over to his enemy? Even though they're her people, her friends, her family, her authorities? Is there any such thing as Rahab believing but not acting to protect God's people? Would it be acceptable if she really believes it in her heart for her to go ahead and say, there are the spies, go get them, throw them in jail? No. Her faith in her heart and her actions of compassion and protection of God's people are so close that you can't separate them. That's the point. True faith loves God's people more than my own people. Loves God's people more than any other allegiance. Is willing to risk my life and my standing with my own family, with my own race, and with my own community for the sake of God's people because I believe in their God and he's my God. True faith. 
loving God's people. You see here in these two examples, Rahab and Abraham, we have a wonderful thing here. We have a picture of faith at the time of conversion in the case of Rahab and faith decades later in the case of Abraham. Rahab acted in radical faith and was saved from God's judgment. Her faith involved a change of allegiance, a complete turning around from identifying herself with her own people to identifying herself with God's people and working for the cause that they believed because God was their God. And it, it involved a radical turnaround. That's how she was saved from judgment. That's radical conversion faith. But what does it look like 35, 40 years down the road? Well, it's still continuing. It's still putting God first. It's still loving God consistently, year after year, decision after decision. You see, true faith is not just a conversion experience, though it is that. It is a way of life. Paul says it this way, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And I must tell you that if you're resting on simply an experience 20 years ago, no, faith is for today too. Trust him today, love him today, obey him with radical obedience today. True faith acts and keeps on acting. Some faith is worthless. True faith acts in obedience. And so we're called to love God more than anything else. Satan believes all the right things, but he doesn't love God. That's worthless faith. Abraham's faith is proven in that he loves God even more than the life of his son. Some faith is worthless. True faith loves God. And we're called here to love one another as we love ourselves. One can claim to have faith, but if he turns his hungry and naked brethren away, what good is it? It's worthless. True faith is seen in the actions of Rahab, who puts her own life on the line and separates herself even from her closest, closest allies for the sake of God's people because she believes in their God. Again, some faith is worthless. True faith acts, loving not only God, but loving his people. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's what true faith looks like. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for your word and all the many examples. It's hard for us to sort through all these things, Lord, for uh, there are many little nuances of meaning. And uh, we have to think hard. But Lord, I pray that we would uh, do just that, that we would meditate on your truth and digest it. Lord, may we understand that counterfeits are terribly deceptive. And that counterfeit faith is deadly. And it's accepted as real, but it's not real. There's so much around, Lord, so many people who think that believing a set of facts without any love for you, making some profession of faith without any actions of love for the brethren, that somehow that's true faith. Lord, I pray that we would be able to sort through all of that and know what it really means to trust you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and rest in you and walk with you and serve you our whole life. 
Help us to learn. Give us hearts of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.